Well, if you were here a few weeks ago, you may remember that the last time I spoke, I told you a, a rather depressing story about my time in Las Vegas and how I had really kind of a, the highest of highs spiritually and then within a year was at the lowest of the low. Um, and so I didn't, want to, I didn't want to give anybody the idea that Las Vegas is a horrible, awful place to live, uh, even though that's true. So I thought I would tell you tonight a different story from Las Vegas, from my time there. And uh, this one is not as depressing. Uh, when I first moved to Las Vegas, I should tell you at the outset, I'm going to kind of let my dude guard down here a little bit, and admit to you that I was basically terrified that I was going to be stung, bitten, mauled, or otherwise killed by some one of the many wild, dangerous poisonous, venomous, deadly creatures that crawl in the valley of Nevada. And here you see uh, behind me the, the um, creature I was most afraid of. That's right, Grant. Say that big and loud. What is it? It's the Mojave Desert rattlesnake. Highly venomous. Um, but you're right, it's a rattlesnake. And I was... I, did, I, never, I mean, I grew up in Maine, and we have some scary things there, but none of them... Uh, inject venom into your body and, and cause your nervous system to shut down. So <laughs> I was sort of nervous about this kind of thing. And for the first few weeks, I was expecting to see black widows around every corner or scorpions in my shoes or whatever it was. Um, but it wasn't... Could you take that off, please, now? <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I have to get through this story. <laughs> but it, it wasn't long... Um, before I basically forgot about all these creepy crawly things because I never saw one in the first few months. And so I, I basically just stopped worrying about it. Uh, and it came to a point where I had been there a little over a year and I realized, thinking to myself as I was walking from the pool at our apartment complex to my apartment, now don't think we were rich. In Las Vegas, every apartment complex has a pool. Um, I was walking along this nice sunny path from the pool to the apartment, thinking about the fact that I had never seen um, any of these creatures, let alone the Mojave rattlesnake. So I got to thinking, you know how you, you do and you start to daydream. And so I'm walking along there, and I thought, well, that's interesting. I haven't really thought about rattlesnakes in a long time. And, and my brain started to wander. I was daydreaming. And you know how this works. You start thinking about something, and, and I'm, at least my brain works this way. When I'm when I think of a problem that might happen, I like to imagine all the things that I would do in the various, you know, little uh, occurrences. You know, how would I handle it? What if I was walking along this path and in this nice, sunny, concrete sidewalk there actually was a rattlesnake right at my feet? What would I do? And my, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm daydreaming. I'm walking along thinking, well, I don't know. What do they do with these things? Do you call the exterminator? I guess I would have to go see the apartment manager and maybe they'd call somebody over to put it in one of those, you know, get that hook thing and put it in the bag and take it back, I don't know, set it free somewhere or whatever they do with them. And I, I just, my brain was going on this and I, I had all the eventualities worked out when uh, suddenly, you knew there was a suddenly coming in this story, didn't you? And understand that the next two minutes of this story happened in about one and a half seconds, okay? And I was walking along down this path thinking about rattlesnakes when right at my feet I heard the following sound. <laughs> And let me, let me try to demonstrate physically what my body did as I was walking along and heard the noise. I went, 
And I jumped from one side of the sidewalk to the other. And I was terrified. And I looked down. Ah, no. I would seem a lot tougher if there was a rattlesnake. It was a sprinkler. (laughs) A little plastic sprinkler. It was so cute. In Las Vegas, they water the crap out of the lawns all the time. And they have these little sprinklers that go under the lawns. And, you know, the water, the air pushes through and the water just sprays, you know, every half hour or so. And there was a little bit of air in the line. So when the water came on, it was on a timer. It started, made that sound. And then all of a sudden it was spraying water, making a sound. You'll forgive me for being completely terrified at this moment. Um, And then, of course, guys, what did I do? I looked around, (laughs) trying to figure out if anybody saw me do this. Because uh, that was, I mean, it was an athletic feat, if I do say, say so myself. I was, like, about to step on this foot, and then all of a sudden I jumped over with my other one. Anyway, I'm looking around to see who might have seen me make an idiot out of myself. Thankfully, there was nobody there. But, so, I would like to think, at least for the sake of my own pride, and don't tell me any different if this is not true, but we've all kind of done something like that, right, where, where we... We did something stupid, and then we're looking around us to see who watched us, who got to see the, the dummy. And it's embarrassing. But as I was recalling that story this week, it occurred to me that the opposite mistake would be worse than embarrassing. <laughs> now, I saw a little, uh, you know, I, what I thought was a snake was a little tiny piece of plastic, right? And it was harmless. It sprayed water, but I didn't even get wet. Um, what if I had, there actually had been a snake, and I treated it as if it were as harmless as a sprinkler? That would be what uh, sociologists call stupid. Um, <laughs> I, you know, it's like a couple weeks ago, I told you about that bear that was roaming the campgrounds. Do you remember that? And he was totally harmless. All he wanted was to eat our food, not us. Uh, but what if that had actually been a scary bear, and we had acted as if it was just this harmless yogi bear campsite, campsite dumpster bear? Well, we might have been eaten that night. (laughs) I might have had our guts ripped out, and I wouldn't be here to tell you this story. That's right, Grant. So, you know, my mother-in-law's deepest fears would have been realized, and I would have had to apologize to her as I was dying for making fun of her (laughs) about being so worried about this bear. (laughs) But the real problem comes that sometimes it's a little challenging to tell the difference between the harmless things and the things that are truly wild that will kill us. And to transition it from the realm of the literal to the realm of the metaphorical, which is you kind of felt coming, I'm sure, spiritually that can be a problem as well, where we don't quite know what is actually harmful to us and what's not, or if there's really any risk spiritually in this, in this crazy world of ours, or if it's all our imagination. So we are getting a little bit wild during Lent this season. We're talking about the reckless pursuit of untamed faith. And if you're going to talk about epic wilderness stories, you could do a lot worse than to go to the story of the Exodus, where the Israelites were brought up and redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, promised that they would go to this really great place, and then complained and grumbled basically nonstop with only intermittent periods of obedience and peace for 40 years before they actually found the promised land, before God actually led them in. And so 
one of the great stories from that wilderness experience, that great story in the wild, comes in the book of Numbers. Uh, And now you have Bibles underneath your chairs. I don't have this on the screen tonight, but I'd like you to follow along in your Bibles if possible. If you have your own, you can look it up. But if you're using a red Bible under your chair, it's on page 122. If you're looking up Numbers, it's chapter 21. It's one of the first five books of the Bible called the Pentateuch or the Torah. So we're at Numbers 21, and um, this is one of the many times when the Israelites rebelled. And this time it happened the following way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we detest this miserable food. Anybody else catch that? (laughs) There's no food, no water, and we detest this miserable food. (laughs) It's like Yogi Berra was their their spokesperson. That's kind of common when we're complaining against God. We say two things that are actually mutually exclusive and we complain about both of them. Anyway, um, so this is how the Lord responded. Then the Lord sent poisonous serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord to take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a poisonous serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten shall look at it and live. So Moses made a serpent of bronze and put it upon a pole. And whenever a serpent bit someone, that person would look at the serpent of bronze and live. So that's kind of a, an odd story. That seems a little magical, doesn't it? I was thinking about this story this week. And being the kind of natural skeptic that I am, I was imagining what it must have been like for the first person, the first guy or first woman who was bitten by the snake after that pole was crafted and put up. If I were the first person to get bitten and I had not seen any evidence that this magical pole with a bronze snake on it actually worked, I'm not so sure I would have been pounding down the door to have somebody bring me over there. In fact, I can imagine myself saying, no, That little magic pole sounds kind of stupid. I'm not going to go look at it. I'm going to sit here and watch my legs swell up like a tire tube instead. It just doesn't seem like that's the kind of thing God would actually do. Now, if somebody else goes and looks at the pole and their their bite gets better, then we can talk. But I'm not going to be the first person to, to limp over to this goofy pole that Moses put up for us. Um, that's just not in me. I don't have that type of faith. <laughs> that's me. You guys probably have a lot more, you're a lot more trusting than I am. But. Well, anyway, as you, as you know, if you've been here, we're actually looking at gospel passages during this wild series. So you, you may be wondering why I took you back to the Old Testament. The reason I did is because tonight's gospel passage is a story of Jesus talking to Nicodemus, And he refers to this event. 
And so I wanted you to have that context in place um, before we got into the text. So we're going to actually look at John 3. And again, if you want to look up in the Red Bibles, we're looking at page 864. It's John 3.12, if you're looking up your, in your own Bible. And this passage of Scripture that I'm going to read to you has two very famous kind of moments in it. The first one is the, the origins of the phrase, born again. We've all heard the phrase, born again. Now, and we're all aware of the, the kind of unfortunate connotations that come with that, and we don't want to be like those crazy born-agains if we were raised in a, you know, a, a different tradition from theirs. And uh, even if we're in, which we are, in the evangelical stream, we, I don't know about you, but I tend to shy away from that phrase, born-again, because it has just been so destroyed by, by like, misconceptions about what it means. But it is biblical, and this is where it comes from in, the, in this passage um, where Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, who's one of the Pharisees, and Nicodemus is not getting it at all, and, and Jesus is maybe, maybe stringing him along a little bit with stuff that's, that he knows is Nicodemus is going to have a hard time understanding. But, but one of the things he says is, you know, you will not see the kingdom of heaven unless you are born from above or born a second time. I, I should add that this is actually pretty momentous, a pretty momentous thing to say to a Jewish person whose very identity in religious faith comes from what? His heritage, his ancestry, his birth, his physical birth. So anyway, Jesus is really kind of doing something that's brilliant here, saying, that birth you had before, nice, but that's not going to quite do it for you. You have to be born from above, born again. So that's the first kind of big time thing that's in this passage. And the second one is probably the most famous Bible verse uh, in the world, John 3. 16. It's the, uh, it's the field goal verse where you hold up the sign when they kick a field goal. This is John 3.16. Now, I, I, one of the things that I kind of get hung up on is when people take one verse out of the Bible and they rip it right out and they say, this defines my faith or my belief. And so I'm going to actually, uh, hopefully you'll, you'll get to see that verse in its context here, which I think will, will put you in better position to understand what Jesus is actually talking about. You can't go around—I mean, it, it's not like it stops being biblical in Scripture and stops being the Word of God if you, if you isolate it like that. But you can, make, you can make the Bible say some pretty goofy things if you just do one verse at a time. Some of you know that a few friends of mine and I a few years ago started this, this uh, I hope, funny, um, satirical Christian news website called The Holy Observer. And one of the, one of the articles we did once was the top ten worst— possible life verses. And, you know, we were picking, like, really wild stuff with babies having their heads dashed against walls and, and you know, the horrors of Babylon and, uh, you know, tent pegs being driven through people's temples. And, you know, these are, these are not verses that you want to live your life by necessary. But, but there's kind of our, I think, again, hopefully funny way of pointing out the absurdity of ripping Scripture out of context like that. Anyway, I want you to listen as I read this passage for the verses that come right before the famous John 3.16 and the stuff that comes right after it, okay? This is verses 12 through 18. And I'll stop a couple times in the middle, but starting in verse 12. Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, and he says, If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, speaking of himself. 
And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And here it comes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. See, what is the, what's the first word in John 3.16, without looking down? Who can tell me? For. What is the for for? Like, one of, the, one of the most important rules in reading Scripture. What is the therefore therefore? <laughs> what is the for for? What is the but but? <laughs> if you see a verse that starts with one of those transitional words, you have to stop and say, okay... This author is connecting what I'm about to read with what I just read. For God so loved the world. So Jesus is very clearly tying this momentous spiritual principle, the basis of Christianity as we understand it, to what came right before that, which is the comparison of himself to that snake, that bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness. Nicodemus was well aware of this story and of the idea that the Israelites would have died a physical death if they had not looked to the snake on that pole. And Jesus is saying, spiritually, you have to look to me and I'm going to be on a pole of my own or you're going to die. So what comes right after that verse? Let's move on to verse 17. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. I think that verse is also crucially important. And quite frankly, I think sometimes some of the people who hold up the John 3.16 sign don't know what the next words in that chapter are. Because sometimes when we hold up our John 3.16 signs, we are doing it in a way that opens the door for us to condemn people. And he's saying this is not what it's about. This is about salvation, not condemnation. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now, (laughs) that doesn't mean we get off scot-free from condemnation, because we need to go on to verse 18. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You see, there is condemnation that comes from lack of faith. A spiritual death, when we decide not to, look to the man on that pole in our wilderness. When we decide, no, that's kind of stupid. I don't believe that actually happened that way. The consequences of that lack of faith is, is the condemnation that, that's spoken of in this chapter. Now, it's important to remember that we don't bring that on people. That's a reality that people bring on themselves, and, and it's up to the Holy Spirit to convict people of that condemnation. But 
if that last verse is true, that verse that says, those who do not believe are condemned already, if that's true, and I would propose to you that it is, then you have to decide. You have to decide what you're going to believe. You have to figure out, is there really something out there that will kill you? Or have we fooled ourselves into being scared of a sprinkler, spiritually speaking? Because if there is a real spiritual danger, and again, I can't convince you of that or convict you of that, but I trust, as we're looking at these words, that that God may be convicting some of you about that. If there is a real spiritual danger, then you have a choice to make. Are you going to look to the cross? Or are you going to take your chances with the snakes? You might actually already feel that bite spiritually. You may sort of see your leg swelling up. But you feel like that first guy who got bitten in the wilderness when no evidence had existed that the pole with the, st- the snake on it was going to do any good. And you think, no, that's, I just can't, no, that's dumb. I, I'm too skeptical to, to try to engage that as reality. And if that's you, you know, I, I kind of feel for you. I feel that along with you. Some days, my doubts probably are every bit as large and real as your own. Maybe you don't even feel the bite. <laughs> You're not even convinced that there's a such thing as snakes in the first place. You don't even think you're in the wilderness at all. And if that's the case, let me just remind you of one other famous snake story in the Bible. It's the first snake story in the Bible. (laughs) It's the Garden of Eden. And you may remember, if you know this story, that God said, here is this lush, beautiful garden for you to live in. You can do anything you want but one thing. Here's one tree that you can't eat from, because if you do, you will surely die. And what did the serpent say to Eve and to Adam, who was there? He said to eat it. Why? Did God tell you that you would die if you ate that? That's not been my experience. You will not surely die. I eat these apples all the time. They're delicious. See, This is a classic and actually quite brilliant lie. It's a bait and switch. God says you will surely die. And he means it. The serpent says you're not going to die right away. And he means it. And so they say, yeah, chomp, chomp. That's good. Looks like we're still here. (laughs) And yet, that broke the fellowship with God and with humanity. And they were cast out of the garden, and, and everything you have heard follows from that fall, from that event. So if you're one of those people who's saying, you know what, these spiritual snakes, 
Yes, they are sprinklers. You are you you don't have you don't know what you're talking about. I don't think that we're really in the wilderness at all. Again, I understand where that doubt comes from. That skepticism is, I think, natural. Just be aware that that is a lie that has been told before, and it did not work out so well. I mean, look, I I can't tell you that that following Jesus, believing in him, will always make perfect sense. I can't tell you that he's going to take away all your pain the second you decide to follow him. As I've suggested already, I can't even tell you that you're going to believe it with all of your heart every day for the rest of your life. All I can tell you is that it's real to me. And it's real to many of the people sitting in this room right now. And we have looked to the man on that pole and felt the death leave our souls. And I can't really sell it to you any harder than that. I mean, I could, but it wouldn't really be true to myself, I don't think, or respectful of you for me to do that. Others are are better at that kind of thing. That's about as hard a sell as I'm going to give you right now. And I'm trusting and hoping that God is speaking in your heart, if you're not following Jesus, that you might be feeling a twinge, a call. And if you would be one of the people, perhaps, who is deciding for the first time that crazy stupidity aside, I'm going to look to the man on the cross because it's all I think I've got right now. If, if that describes you, I'd like to ask you to do a couple of things. And they're very easy things. The first one is I'd like you to kind of write a note to me on your info card. Mel mentioned the info cards that came in your bulletins. And if you are uh, stepping out in faith that way, would you write that down in an info card? And you can, you can address it to me if you want or any of the staff. Uh, I, I, one of us would love to talk with you about that this week. And... Um, Like I said, it doesn't have to be me. If you're a woman and want to speak to a woman, we have a pastoral intern, Anna, who's really wonderful, and she would be happy to talk to you as well. But write that down, would you? Sometime. You don't have to do it right this second. And then I'd also like to ask you to take communion with us, having stepped out in faith, to come receive those symbols. Either for the first time, or maybe for the first time with a new understanding of what you're doing. Because that's how we celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it's how we remember it. And it's how we're nourished in our souls in that faith and belief. So write, write us a note and, uh, and come to the communion table in a minute. We're going to be here for another little while here, um, worshiping in song. Uh, so you have time to think about that. Uh, but let's pray. Gracious God, We are thankful that you sent your Son, that all who believe in him would not die, but would have eternal life. And as crazy as that sounds to us, we believe it, and we put our faith and trust in Jesus, the man lifted up on that pole on the cross. And all of us who are following him, pray together for those who may be stepping out in faith for the first time. 
that as they look to Jesus, they would feel that death leave their souls, leave the room, and that they would give, it would be given assurance that their faith is well-placed and that you have called them to yourself. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, your Son, our Lord. Amen.